these last couple of uh, weeks, we've been kind of slowing down in Hebrews through chapter 10, and probably we'll do the same through chapter 11. There's just so much there. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 31. I love the Summer Olympics. I love the, uh, the gymnastics of the Summer Olympics. Um, a gymnastics coach will do three things in coaching their student. Three things to help their gymnast. First, during their routine, they will often cry out quick words of help to his gymnast, such as, find the floor or run faster, or tuck. We've heard these quick words of encouragement throughout Hebrews. In chapter 3, the author says, fix your eyes on Jesus. In chapter 4, he says, strive to enter the rest. In chapter 10, we heard him say, hold on to that confession. After the routine, a good coach will give the gymnast some serious counsel about their performance and say things like, go back to the basics. Or, remember what we worked on. The author of Hebrews has given us some good counsel along the way so far. In chapter 2, he tells us to pay closer attention to what you have heard. In chapter 5, he counsels them to get off the milk and start eating solid food. And in chapter 10, a little later, he will advise them to to remember your faith of the former days. Look back. But a great coach says hard things. He will give serious warning to his gymnasts and say, listen, if you don't tuck your head faster, you could really hurt yourself. He'll say things like, if you ignore my counsels, counsel, one of these days, one of these days, you could possibly break your neck. He'll say things like, if you don't commit yourself to the routine, you could very well die. When a coach says that, it's not because he's angry. It's not because he's trying to save his own reputation. No, he's saying that because He cares for the gymnast. In many cases, they've been with each other for a decade or longer. He loves this gymnast. He wants to tell them the truth because the consequences are so dire. If you're not fully committed, you could die. It's exactly what a text in Hebrews 10 is telling us this morning. He loves these Christians so much, he's willing to be honest about the consequences of not living all in for Christ. Look with me at verse 26. God's word says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Father God, teach us through this hard text. Challenge us, and yes, Jesus, yes, Spirit, encourage us. Help us to understand what you have for us. In your living word, in Jesus' name, amen. I was a product of the 70s, and in the 70s there were reruns of Lost in Space, and I love that cheesy program. If you know that cheesy program, it was, you know, this this family that was lost in space, and they would go to different planets, and... And the, the youngest son had this best friend that was the robot, and they would often go wandering off. And the robot could sense when danger was coming. And if you remember this program, the, the robot would, all of a sudden, his arms would go out and start flailing, and he would yell, Danger, Will Robinson. Danger is coming. Be careful. He was warning. That's exactly what the author is doing in these verses. He's flailing and saying, Danger, brothers and sisters. Warning. He's yelling at them. He's yelling at these group of persecuted Jewish converts of the first century. That's who the, this letter is written to. Who, who are under incre- incredible pressure, incredible persecution. We, we get a little bit sense of that in, in the following text in, in chapter 10 what kind of persecution they were going through. But this pressure, this persecution, was giving them pause in their commitment to Christ. And they were thinking seriously, you know what? If we just back off a little from this Christian, from Christ a little bit, if we just blend in, if we go back to Orthodox Jewishness, we will not feel all this pressure. And God, through the Spirit, inspired this letter to be written. And this is the the third warning that we have here in the book of Hebrews, the third serious warning. In chapter 3, he warns, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. He's saying, danger, if you continue, you will end up like the Jews in the wilderness. And he uses that example, scattered in the wilderness dead. In chapter 6, he, he ups the ante, if you will, and gives another warning about the, the dire consequences of, of living the Christian life, of, of partaking in the communal living of Christ, of, of, he says, tasting the fruits, of benefiting from Christ, benefiting from, from the community of Christ. Sharing that sweet fellowship with believers. Tasting the goodness of God. And if you turn back after experiencing that, he says, there's no way back. And then, he says here, that seems to be what 
That, in chapter 6, seems to be what has happened to Charles Darwin. If you, if you know anything about him, he wrote at one point, I came to gradually disbelieve in Christianity as divine revelation. He said, disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate, but at last it was complete. The rate was so slow that I felt no distress and have never since doubted for a single second that my conclusion was correct. That, brothers and sisters, is the definition of apostasy. And that, brothers and sisters, is what the author is talking about in our verses today. A person who has true understanding of the gospel, a true understanding of the correct gospel, yet willfully and habitually denies the truth of that. That's what verse 26 is describing. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. This warning is, this, this verse is often misunderstood. It's not describing sinning after you've been converted. Deliberately go on sinning. It's not describing that position because that position is the position that every single Christian that has ever lived is in. We keep on sinning. As a matter of fact, in 1 John 1.8, it says, if, if you tell me that you have no sin, you're denying Christ. And the truth is not in you. We all sin. We all struggle. That's, that's what Romans 7 is, is talking about. We all live in Romans 7, don't we? I don't do that which I want to do. And that which I want to do, what Christ tells me and I, and I want to do it, I don't do it. That's how we struggle. That's our struggle. Every single Christian, but by the Spirit's power, we're able to say yes to godliness and no to ungodliness. And when we don't, and when we sin... God graciously has given us a way back. We just experienced that here in our prayer of confession, didn't we? That's the way back. Right? God says in his word in 1 John that that if you repent and confess and come to him, he's faithful and just and will forgive you. There's always a way back, brothers and sisters. And as a matter of fact, that is the mark of a true, genuine, spirit-filled, regenerate believer. Is they come back. They repent. They take that road. This text is also not describing backsliding. This text is not describing backsliding. On February 24th, 2001, a one-year-old named Erica somehow wandered out of her mother's bed, out of the house in Edmonton, Canada, and into the frigid night. When her mother found her, Erica was completely frozen. Her body hard her joints stiff. She took her to the local medical center and and they gradually warmed her body back up and to the amazement of everybody, she started breathing again. And when, when, when they tested her, there was no brain damage. She went on with the rest of her life. Backsliding is kind of like that. When we wander from our father's house into the frigid night, 
we slowly freeze and we take on the visage of death. We look like we're dead. Our hearts are being hardened. Our spiritual bodies look lifeless. But our Father notices that we're gone and comes after us, pursues us, and brings us back into his warm house. And he revives us. That's what backsliding looks like. In Hosea 14.4, he talks to, God is talking to his people Israel, and he says this, I will heal their backsliding and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. You see, backsliders come back. Apostatizers don't. And any Christian can succumb to backsliding. Any Christian. We can become ensnared in a particular sin. A little later on in Hebrews, we're going to talk about the Hebrews, the author of the Hebrews says, you can become ensnared in sin. Sin ensnares you. And sin deceives you in that ensnaring process. It deceives you into thinking everything that you're doing, there's no harm, no foul. This isn't so bad, I know worse sins. It's only just this once. I mean, there's lie after lie after lie. Deceit after deceit. Sin will deceive you into thinking you can deal with this sin on your own. I think that's one of the, 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 the slickest deceits of sin. Something I've seen over and over and over again as a pastor. As they fail, they remove themselves from fellowship. As, as they continue to sin, they back off from fellowship. They actually are deceived into thinking they're better off without the body. They actually are deceived into thinking that the body will judge them if they come back. They're deceived into thinking that being alone is good. Brothers and sisters, if you ever hear that, know that it comes from the pit of hell. God said from the very beginning, it is not good for God for man to be alone. You need the body more than you think you do. Sin also deceives people into thinking that backsliding is only temporary. I can come back later. I have time. This is only temporary. This is what I thought in my late teens and early 20s. When I backslid, I thought, oh, this is only time. I have time to come back. I can do this. I can sow my wild oats. And you know what those wild oats sowed? A DWI, two broken legs, and a shipwrecked faith. Danger, brothers and sisters. Backsliding is costly. Sometimes backsliding, we get involved with the wrong crowd. That can only encourage your backsliding. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good behavior. There's a direct correlation there. Who are you hanging out with? Danger, brothers and sisters. Who are you hanging out with? Danger, teenagers. Who are you hanging out with? This is a real caution for you. Pick your friends carefully. Pick your friends wisely. Pick who you invest your precious time with. It's not saying don't hang around with unbelievers. Not at all. But be careful who you're investing your life in and with. 
they can encourage you to wander out into the frigid cold. But perhaps the scariest thing about backsliding is you can't tell the difference between backsliding and apostasy in the beginning. You can never tell the difference. Sinclair Ferguson writes, the solemn fact is that none of us can tell the difference between the beginning of backsliding and the beginning of apostasy. Both look the same. The difference is only seen in the result. Backsliders return. Apostatizers don't. On August 21st, 1979, while on tour with the Bolshevik or the Bolshoi Ballet in New York City, Alexander Gutenhoff contacted the U.S. State Department at, when he was at JFK Airport readying himself to go back to Russia and asked for political asylum. There was a tense three-day standoff, if you remember this time period. It was a tense three-day standoff between the U.S. State Department and the Russian government. Russia demanded and even threatened his return. As Gutenhoff watched the plane take off back to Russia, he knew he would never see his family again, he would never see his wife again, he'd never see his homeland again. Gutenhoff had successfully defected and in so doing left everything behind permanently. That's what apostasy is. It's defection from the faith. And the author of Hebrews is yelling, danger, brothers and sisters, danger. If you seek asylum in the world, you know what that looks like? There is no sacrifice for sin left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. If that doesn't terrify you, I don't know what will. What scripture is saying is apostasy leads to severe judgment. Severe judgment. Contained in our text is a collection of of some of the most terrifying descriptions of, of this judgment. It says it's like a raging fire consuming God's enemies. It looks like vengeance, God's vengeance. It looks like God's payback. The terror of the living God. The terror of living life the way you want and falling into the hands of a living God is scary. Apostasy's judgment is severe. Apostasy's judgment is hell. Science fiction writer Isaac Asimov wrote, I don't believe in the afterlife, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell. Or, even worse, fearing heaven. For whatever the tortures of hell are, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse, he writes. However much I love and respect Asimov as a writer, he just absolutely does not know what he's talking about. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor mind conceived what God has prepared for him, for them who love him. There he's talking about heaven. Heaven is going to be the most wonderful place. We can, our words fail. Our experiences here fail. Our only a, a, a light a taste. It's going to be beautiful and wonderful and safe. 
and peaceful and exciting and joyful. But by the same token, hell is going to be unimaginably bad. It is described in Scripture as a place where there is continual darkness, no light, no light, ever. It's described as a place of sorrow, where there's continual weeping and gnashing of teeth, no joy, ever. It's a place where there's no rest, ever. It's a place where pain, of pain where there's unquenchable fire, burning sulfur, where there's eternal, non-stop suffering and misery. Forever. It is a god-awful place, to coin a phrase. And if we believe that there is a hell, that should spur us on to tell our family, our friends, our neighbors, anyone who would possibly listen about the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Because God in his great mercy did provide a way around, if you will. God in his great mercy sent his son Jesus to do what we could not do We can't live the perfect life that God says gets you into heaven. We can't, in our behavior or our heart, ever attain heaven. So he sent his son to do that, to live the life that we cannot and earn heaven. He sent his son Jesus not only to do that, but he sent his son to pay the penalty for sin. You see, sin does have a payback. Sin does have a paycheck. And it's called death. And Jesus took that penalty on the cross and died. Then he rose three days later. And the good news of Jesus Christ is, here is the good news of Jesus Christ that anyone who trusts in God's goodness and not their own will be saved from hell. Anyone who believes that they cannot keep the law perfectly and trusts that Jesus did is saved from hell. Anyone who believes that they deserve the death but that trusts that Christ died the death for them is thawed back to life. Anyone who trusts that Jesus is not dead, but alive, resurrected, a fork in the road from hell has been created. And that leads to life. Jesus said it to Martha on that day. He rose Lazarus back to life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That's the fork in the road that is created. 
And if you know this, and walk away from it, the judgment is more severe than if you've never heard it before. That's what verses 28 and 29 are telling us. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? What's going on here, brothers and sisters, is more knowledge, more responsibility. More knowledge, more responsibility. If those who rejected the Mosaic law went to hell, how much worse for those who know about Jesus Christ and turn away? That's what those verses are saying. Francis Schaeffer put it something like this, proclaiming the gospel to someone is the most loving thing to do, yet brings with it a greater responsibility if they end up rejecting it. More knowledge brings more culpability. That's the consistent witness of Scripture, isn't it? James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that teachers will be judged more strictly. You want to teach? You want to invest yourself in Scripture? You want to really know the deeper truths of Scripture? Okay, you're responsible for them. Matthew 11, Jesus says this, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for them on the day of judgment than for you. Those cities saw Jesus Christ. They saw the miracles. They heard the teaching. Tyre and Sidon didn't. More knowledge, more culpability. In John 19.11, Jesus even says this to Pontius Pilate. He says, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. He was speaking about Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, who heard Jesus' teaching for three years who lived with Jesus, who slept with Jesus. He experienced the miracles. He ate the bread. He drank the wine at the wedding of Canaan. He saw Peter walking on water. He saw Jesus still the storm. He touched Lazarus and maybe even helped take off those those bandages, those burial bandages. He listened when Jesus talked about his death and resurrection, he literally saw the gospel lived out in front of him, yet turned away. And Jesus says this of him, it would have been better if he had never been born. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. More knowledge, more responsibility, more knowledge, More culpability. The more you know, the more you're culpable for. I was taught years ago that there are basically, on any given Sunday, five groups of people sitting in the pews. Five groups of people sitting in the pews. 
the warrior, the weary, the wandering, the lazy, and the lost. The warrior, the spiritually strong, the weary, the spiritually tired, the wandering, the spiritual drifters, the lazy, the spiritual apathetic, and the lost, those who who don't know what they don't know. So to the lost, those of you here who, who perhaps don't believe in Jesus Christ, perhaps this is the first time you're hearing about Jesus Christ, I don't know. This text is a fork in the road for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to tell you, thank you for being here. You are welcome here every Sunday. You're welcome to our potlucks. You're welcome to our Sunday school. You're welcome to anything and everything that we do. And I hope you feel welcome. I know it's a hard Sunday to be here. But I hope you feel welcome. And I want you to know that Isaac Asimov was wrong. He was wrong. The hell is real and chillingly horrific. And Jesus is real. And he really did come. And he really did live, die for you to offer you this fork in the road. To offer you hope. To offer you a way out of hell. The hand is out. And all you do have to do is reach out. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, Joshua said. And that rings true today. To the warrior, this text is a call to action. If you're here and you're doing well and you're spiritually strong, this is a call to action. Ephesians 4.15 says, Speak the truth in love to those who are backsliding, to those who are drifting, to those who are wandering, to those in danger of apostatizing. The most loving thing you can do to a brother and sister when you see them drifting from the faith is to tell them the truth. We say this a lot around here. If, if you see a person running towards a cliff, the most unloving thing you can do is stay silent and just watch them run off the cliff. The most loving thing you can do is start yelling, warning, careful, there's a cliff. And if that doesn't work, perhaps tackling them to the ground. You know, they won't like that. That's the most loving thing you can do. This this text calls the warriors among us to warn those about the danger of rejecting Christ. And perhaps the biggest group that are here to the weary and wandering and lazy, the majority of us here, this text is a rush of adrenaline. It's a rush of adrenaline. To those who might be drifting from Christ, to those of you who might be just weary, tired of living the life, to those who are growing apathetic, lazy in their faith, this is a rush of adrenaline. I think we've all had this experience in driving long distances. You're driving into the night and you start getting tired and you start, the eyes get heavy and and all of a sudden you wake up and you're headed to the guardrail. 
Or worse yet, have you ever woken up and you're in the other lane and you see headlights coming at you? And you swerve to get out of the way in the adrenaline rush and all of a sudden you're wide awake? Right? That's what this text is. To those of you who are weary and wandering and lazy, it's a wake-up call. That's what this text is for us today. We all from time to time get lazy, get weary, and are prone to wander as the, as the hymn that we sing says. It is this text and texts like these that terrify us enough to get the spiritual adrenaline pumping so that the weariness doesn't turn into laziness, so that the laziness doesn't turn into wandering, so that the wandering doesn't turn into apostasy. Please pray with me. Father, It's a hard text. We praise you and thank you for having it for us today. Thank you for encouraging us and waking us up. In Jesus' name, amen.